This episode of Above the Cloud is brought to you by Locology 2020, our annual conference taking place March 16th through the 18th in San Antonio, Texas. Be sure to mark your calendars and see you in San Antonio. Hey everyone, this is Charlie and welcome to Above the Cloud. So this episode's a little different. I was recently at the AsiaCom conference in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. I know that sounds a little random to some of you. Actually, the people there call it Saigon still. That was an interesting fun fact. The conference really is a companion conference to what the LSA does here in the States, what Cinda does in Europe, Big Five Digital does in Africa, Middle East, sort of creating an informal network of international conferences focused on the what was called the local search industry. I think that I think we all agree that term is a bit out of date. But at any rate, we had a number of great speakers, one of which was Elise Balsili, who's the basically runs sales at Census in Australia. And one of the sessions involved the two of us sitting down and talking about sales and asking about how running sales at Census is different than it was you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. So it was an interesting conversation around how an organization that has gone through so much change, like Census, where you know going from a few thousand salespeople down to a few hundred salespeople, from many hundreds of thousands of customers to about a hundred thousand customers, from selling just a print product and maybe an online Yellow Pages you know, version of that print product to selling a multi-product bundle of digital marketing solutions. Kind of walked through that journey a little bit and just talked about how they hire and train. So what's interesting now is the initial sales process, which used to be pretty long for traditional directory companies, is down to just a couple of weeks, and then it's out you go into the field and learn on the job. And I thought that was kind of interesting, and I hope you enjoy it. Just big picture, you know, we talk a lot about change, but how have you, has your organization changed in the last five years? I mean, just what are the, the main points where five years ago was unrecognizable to where it is today? Not just, and I know there's several, but the most important. So I think five years ago as an organisation, we made some choices and decisions that were very much made around us as a business and probably not centred around the customers that we serve. And some of those decisions involved offshoring things, whether that be to the Philippines or to different parts of the world, but not even offshoring them in a really sensible fashion. So we'd have a billing team, a collections team, a changes team, a content team, a design team. And our poor customers would get ping-ponged around all of these different departments trying to get something really simple actioned right. and done. And I suppose as an organisation over the past five years, we've actually almost done a 360 on that point and brought a lot of that capability back in-house in Melbourne, in Australia, and also re-orchestrated the processes that we send customers through because the experience of speaking to five different people to get yeah, something That's a bad experience done. if they're sitting in an Mel- office in Melbourne or if they're in Manila. In Manila. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, so we didn't necessarily just bring the kind of cumbersome process back in-house. Mm-hmm. We re-orchestrated the process so that we almost created a centre of excellence that you would speak to one person and you would have your thing actioned there and then um, and in a really timely fashion. So... We understood as an organisation that we probably made some choices and decisions that weren't the right choices for our customers and were quite self-serving choices. Mm-hmm. For cost um, reasons, purely for cost reasons? For cost reasons. And I also think at times people thought that setting up a level of domain expertise would deliver a quality output, mm-hmm. whereas actually having a whole heap of domain experts kind of may have seemed like a sensible idea, but in reality kind of created friction. And so one of the focuses of our business over the past few years is we've literally become obsessed about our customers. Um, We measure everything. We survey hundreds and hundreds of customers every single month to understand the experience that they have when they deal with our business, to understand the experience they have when we onboard them um, so that we can continually, iteratively improve the 
okay. product back to Okay, them. so one is you've brought out outsourcing. So five years ago, outsourcing was the norm, and you've brought yeah. that back largely. Not to get too off track on that, but just quickly, what is the sensible part of the business to outsource? Or, or do you have a sense for that? So I think, and I said it in my presentation earlier in the week, we are not experts at everything. And I right. think part of well, that right. is Product. almost I mean, championing with of, yeah, people. But I'm saying like internal, um, internal processes. But I think also, if you look kind of beyond the product, there's levels that we've partnered with people in the room here today who do service our SEO customers. For example, Aaron's up the back there from Boostability. Um, and the Boost guys do service our customers. They talk to them on a monthly basis. They provide them with in-depth reporting. There was a time when that was seen as giving up your customer relationship. Correct. Mm -hmm. But we actually seem like the Boost guys are part of the fabric of our team. They're part of our internal team. They're part of our organization. Mm -hmm. We have meetings and really open dialogue with them. We kind of collaborate and share strategies and ideas. Mm -hmm. And it's not then seen as an outsourcing relationship. It's almost like they are the customer success team that support our sales guys who go out there and sell products. Um, and they're supporting us managing the relationship with that customer. Um, so I think the whole outsourcing piece, um, and I know that Paul touched on that earlier, is almost not seen like an outsourcing piece okay, because I right. think... It right. is complete partnership. So I think we run. I guess custom I was thinking, you know, is it outsourcing development? Is it outsourcing IT? You know, finance. The things that are non-customer facing. My, I, but I don't want to get in too much into that conversation. That's not really a sales discussion. So <laughs> let's kind of get back. So talking about big changes. One is, you know, you're you're owning that customer relationship more. Um, you know, you sort of got rid of the outsourced sales piece. So what? I, obviously, the the sales force is much smaller than it was five years ago. Um, what other things are different about, I mean, uh, the technology you're using, the, um, you know, how they're trained, how they're, you know, what the sales methodology is. Just kind of walk us through yeah. you know, the big ones. So I think there's probably lots of big ones yeah. that exist in that. So I think we as an organization are probably investing heavily in people more than we have in many, mm -hmm. many years. Um, so if anything, our face-to-face -face workforce has grown in the last 12 months and will continue to grow over the next 12 months. So we've actually... In what, to what degree? I mean, how... So we've probably grown 10% year on year in the number of resources that we've had. Um, are these shifted resources or are they additional? No, they're net new resources. Okay. Um, and one of the things that I think we went too hard on was pulling back on the number of resources that we've had. Um, so we've reduced the number of accounts that our account managers have to ensure that we can deliver a better quality relationship back with our customers. Mm -hmm. Um, but we have heavily, heavily invested in training capability. And for us, it's been a bit of a journey over the past couple of years around building out the capability that we needed to have in our workforce to ensure that, I suppose, in a world of digital, um, there's a different level of skill and capability that's required from an account manager to sit in front of a customer. And as the years have gone on, our customers have become so educated that we've had to continue to educate our sales and service consultants. But we almost got to a point that we were making them really book smart. So they were the kind of digital doctors. They knew the ins and outs and everything. But we actually forgot a really special component. And sales that was skills. the sales skills. Okay, and yeah. not even the sales skills, but the art of being able to have a conversation and in explain right. I mean, that well, Which gets to another conversation, which is what our sales skills now is. Because yeah. it's not... Um, so we've also, one of the new things over the past couple of years we've invested in is almost sales coaches in the field um, across all of our markets across Australia to make sure that we not only teach it, but beyond the teaching that we have someone there to reinforce it in field. Mm -hmm. so, so, but what is this? Because there's a conversation around is selling um, 
just being aggressive, making a lot of a lot of activity and and and, and closing all the time, or is it uh, more of a uh, empathetic, you know, listening process? That just you, there's an evolution that it's definitely yeah. the latter. So yeah. I. Um, have worked at Yellow for the past 15 years. And my very first role at Yellow was a telephone sales role 15 years ago. We would run a TV commercial that would say, say closing soon. And I literally sat with a headset on and tried to take orders as I quickly possibly could because I knew that the next customer would want to order something. And it was the days by which I was literally just an order taker and I was just selling things. And the value I was providing the customers that I was serving was probably not that spectacular. Whereas I think one of the pieces now that we're trying to do is almost become part of the fabric of the organisations that we deal with. We want to make sure that in regional areas right across the country that we've got local resources in the field, that we're not servicing them from a contact centre in Melbourne. We want to be part of the decision-making process. Do you have process. sales offices anymore? So from a, our field sales guys, so we have them right across the country, but they work from home. So okay, the intent is we actually yeah. don't want them sitting in an office. Right. So we actually want the guys out in the field, customer-facing, as often as we possibly can. And I think for us, trying to get them out in the field in front of customers for kind of 15 plus appointments per week means that they're probably only sitting at home for six hours a week. And most of that time is either traveling or literally sitting there with clients. And so I think the exiting of the regional offices was probably made for many reasons, but I think the best reason um, and the best thing that's come out of it is the guys are actually literally customer facing far more than they've ever been before. Okay, so how do you want the conversation to go now versus, if, you know, I'm using five years as an arbitrary number, but how is that, kind of describe how the conversation is different now. So I think one of the things now is we really want to become that trusted advisor. So one of the things that we've really tried to do over the past couple of years is really build out a compelling narrative and a compelling value story that is consistent no matter whether I'm servicing you or you're going out and seeing one of our customers. But we want it to be far more consultative. So we want to deeply understand the businesses that we serve. And I think also concurring with Paul earlier, we don't have commissions that are focused on products. We don't we don't kind of target people differently, whether they're selling a Yellow Pages print product or whether they're selling part of our digital services, because ultimately we want to build customers for life. And so we want to build really trusting, consultative relationships with them. And I think part of that relationship is having honest conversations with them sometimes. So how do you incent for like lifetime value? So I think one of the things that we realized, and we've historically set targets based on products and services, and it's really for your own self-fulfilling needs. I think if you're not out there and understanding the businesses that you serve and sometimes having to have a frictionful conversation with them and let them know that actually the choices they want to make are not the right choices to support their business into the future. And I think unless you have a platform that we allow our consultants to go out there and have those conversations with customers, we are going to continue to kind of send our business on the wrong trajectory because it becomes a self-fulfilling dialogue rather than a dialogue that's really going to support them into the future. So I think from a, a product and services perspective at the moment, we sell sort of seven or eight different digital marketing services products. We still have a print product that's actually performing exceptionally well. And I think we've seen that product. It's obviously declined significantly um, over the years, but we've now got it to a point that some of our advertisers in print are getting exceptional value out of the product. And we've kind of even transformed our print product over the past couple of years and have a number of different offerings that sit as part of that mix. But we don't want to necessarily incentivize someone to just go out there and hold on to the print for dear life. Right. I was going to ask, so how do you expect them to talk about print? I mean, is it customer dependent or what's the conversation? You don't want them to have it at a specific point of the conversation or you wait for the other 
No, no, I think we're completely open and transparent in relation. And I think that's one of the things we probably pride ourselves on now is the transparency. So for a significant number of our print customers, we track their print adverts. So we actually measure the ROI from the call volumes that they receive from the product, which helps us make really informed decisions. For the organisations that are not wanting to participate in call tracking, we work really closely with the guys at Market Authority who do a lot of independent research across all of our markets across the country around the demographics of the people that are using the print product, how frequently print people use print. And sometimes that data informs us and actually gets us to a position that we're having a really informed conversation with a customer and advising them that actually the level that they're investing in print probably isn't going to set them up for the future. And we're probably the ones proactively saying to kind of diversify their spend into other products because ultimately we want their business to still be thriving and successful in the future. Well, as I think I mentioned yesterday, the best way for a mechanic to, to build trust is to tell you your car isn't broken, right? Or So you're willing to sort of, are you willing to recommend other products? Are you willing to do 100%, other, okay. and I think that's why we don't incentivize based on products or services um, from a commission perspective because we don't want them to go out there and try and get a customer to maintain a product when in actual fact the customer would be better off reducing that product slightly and investing in other things because ultimately if their business is successful, our partnership is going to be successful. So Somebody comes back with a smaller spend with a client, but it's the right spend for that customer. Do you do you have a way of knowing that and, and not punishing the rep? I mean, you know what I'm saying, right? No, no, yeah. 100%. Yeah. And I think as an organization, we very much understand that there's businesses that want to grow their spend. There's businesses that want to stabilize. There's businesses that are preparing to exit the business and probably are exiting that business as a tradie who's not necessarily going to hand anything over to someone at the end of the day. So I think as an organization, we've managed to set up our capability internally to be able to view quite in-depthly the relationship that we have with our customers, but also to understand their personas and where those customers sit in their kind of customer journey so that we can understand and kind of future predict some of those things sometimes. But ultimately, the way in which you allow a customer to do business with you and the way in which you allow a customer to stop doing business with you is indicative of the relationship that you may have with that business in the future. Because I think sometimes allowing a customer to exit gracefully is also a really beautiful thing because that person may go on to set up another business in the future and you want to make sure that you've built a really solid relationship. It's a different attitude than you would have gotten it. A few years back. Definitely. So, okay, let's, if people want to queue up questions, uh, go ahead and get the mics out there. But um, I just want to change gears a little bit and talk about recruiting and training because it's, obviously it's a huge issue. The thing we hear often over and over again, it's not just with traditional organizations, but it's probably more acute with traditional organizations, is your, your brand is, um, makes it a challenge to bring in young people who are new, new early career stage people who want to sell. Uh, maybe they prefer to sell for a digital company. Is this something you face? I assume it is, but if it's not, please challenge me. And how do you deal with it if you do? So I think one of the things that we've probably done better over the past 12 months from a recruitment perspective is almost take our time. So Mm -hmm. we were very much of the mindset that I had 10 vacancies I needed to fill and I'd sit there and say, radio, I'm going to have a new starter training start in four weeks time and I'd go hell for leather and I'd try and recruit my 10 people and I'd start up my training. But inevitably... I was filling seats for the sake of filling seats and maybe there was four or five of those people who were exceptionally talented people and were a right fit for our organisation. But I think we've almost got to a point that we need to make sure that we're building and recruiting the right kind of calibre and talent of individual. And it's probably one where you were talking about outsourcing where we were working with a number of outsourced recruitment companies but actually found 
that we do a significantly better job with in-house recruitment because our recruiters deeply understand our organisation. They actually attend our meetings. They're really kind of informed around our business requirements and where we're at, but they're also able to build a really robust talent pool of people to have kind of on-demand ready. Um, and so that's one of the ones that we've actually found we've worked much better having that relationship in-house. But from a training perspective, we have very much kind of overhauled our training at Yellow over the past but, but kind of... Before we get to the training, yeah, sorry. sort of, uh, who's your co competition for the best talent? And are you competitive with that competition for the best talent, for the best sales talent? So I think um, in today's world, the competition mm -hmm. is actually, um, I suppose, there are a thousand different providers who offer digital marketing services right, right across Australia. Um, there's a number of other directory publishers that are here today, um, but there's also all of the kind of boutique digital agencies that right. are out and, and there. I guess what I'm getting at is, you know, does somebody think it's cooler to work there than at Yellow, or and, and do you, you know, and are, how do you overcome that challenge? I'm, I'm assuming that challenge exists. Yeah. And you're not saying it does or doesn't. So. No, no, <laughs> um, and I think from a, a talent yeah. perspective and a recruitment mm -hmm. perspective for us. Um, it always is a challenge to try and find and acquire the right talent. And I don't mm -hmm. even think it's down to just the digital agencies. I think mm -hmm. when you look out there, you can find exceptionally calibered um, or exceptionally talented individuals that work in kind of the digital marketing services ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, but they could also just as easily flip over and get a role at Salesforce that's going to pay 100000 a year more mm -hmm. than what we would pay. So there's, I think our competition so comes yeah. from kind of IT and other fields, okay. not necessarily digital marketing services. I think we've got... Um, a compelling enough offering that we can kind of recruit talent from the digital marketing services ecosystem. I think where it becomes more challenging is when, when you're wanting to recruit really exceptionally kind of talented individuals, it gets to a point that they can pick up three, four hundred thousand dollars a year in IT, and that's probably the one for okay. us that becomes okay. a challenge. Okay. So is there enough talent pool out there to deal with it, or does that just mean you have to settle for? I don't think it's yeah. necessarily settling for. I think mm -hmm. for us, it's taking our time. So if I look at a couple of the recruitments that we've done this year, we've literally taken an extra couple of months to find the right talent rather than finding someone for the sake of it. And so I think for us, recruiting the right talent is critically important. And I would rather wait and hire the right person mm -hmm. than hire someone for the sake of hiring someone and having someone there. So okay. I think we've probably become a little better um, or a little more patient, I should say, to make sure that we hire individuals that are the right fit for our business. Oh, okay, I think we want to go to a few audience questions. Yeah. I just wanted to say my experience is that age is not is, is, is almost certainly not going to be a key criteria in, in who the right sales guy could be compared with in the past. And, and that's particularly true because we are now looking at salespeople who are going to be in a consultative type role. And that's very different from selling one product, which is what we used to do in the past. So I think the profile is very much based on, is this person capable of being a consultant in terms of deciding which product matches which customer? Um, and age may or may not be relevant in that. And I would say age is definitely not relevant um, in that. And we probably look for a couple of different profiles of individuals when we're sort of recruiting talent as well. So we've got a significant volume of customers that exist in a, a regional environment that we have a very different relationship with to some of our customers that exist in Melbourne or Sydney who may have 150 locations right across Australia and we're presenting to in board meetings and having quite formal and structured presentations. And I think we will almost look for a different profile of individual depending on the market role that we're looking for. 
And I think very much it's finding someone that is kind of the right fit for that area. And I think if I take um, one of our recent recruitments that we've done in one of the er regional areas in Australia where we've recruited a couple of individuals, and this is very rural, very regional, we wanted people that were deeply connected to the community. We wanted people that were members of the local kind of CFA. We wanted people that were kind of connected to the football clubs and the cricket clubs. And we wanted people who were the lifeblood of what that community meant and what that community was. We didn't necessarily want some hotshot sales guy that came in who blew our socks off in an interview and we were like, if this guy was in Sydney, he would be perfect. Because actually, he wasn't going to resonate with the locals in that community and we needed someone who was really going to be able to kind of work in that area and work in that community and become part of the community. And so I think for us, even the profile would differ depending on where we were recruiting. I think we have another over here. Yeah, at least I think you've really done a wonderful job with, with the transition of your people, as I've seen over the years. And so I compliment you on that, and I love the mixture as well that you've done with your product mixture as well. You said something I thought was really interesting. You said that you have a coaching system set up to assist your salespeople. Could you expand on that and tell us a little bit more about that? So probably one of the things that we've done that may have bucked trend slightly is we no longer necessarily employ trainers per se. We employ exceptional, exceptional salespeople that we will put through a training program to get them certified to be a trainer or a coach um, who run our new starter training and also work with our consultants in field. So for us, we spent a really long time getting people book smart. Um, but we weren't getting them street smart and they weren't able to translate those smarts in front of a customer. And so what we've now done is organised coaches in all of our markets or what we're calling capability managers who are really there to kind of reinforce the value beyond the classroom. And I think one of the really exceptional things is if I look at the dollar return and the performance of the accounts that our capability managers have been on, their results are really exceptional. And for us, it's been really fantastic to be able to lift the bench strength and the caliber um, of individuals because I think for some organizations and especially I think for organizations that are probably earlier on that digital transformation, it's quite a difficult process to get people from being kind of those yellow gurus who are exceptional at selling yellow to kind of building the bench strength and the capability that you need across all of the digital marketing services products. And then the continual learning because the market is constantly changing and evolving on a daily basis and you need someone who's up to date and relevant and able to teach them that content, but also then make sure that they can articulate it in a really simple and easy way in front of their customers um, that is frictionless. So for us, that's been super valuable um, and has worked much better from utilizing salespeople and training them to be coaches rather than getting people who were coaches, but not necessarily. So what is the initial sales, actually sales training? experience for a new um so for a new starter they will go into kind of training twofold so we will put them in a classroom training session for a couple of weeks and really the first week is training them on sort of systems and processes and products um but the second part of it is literally just role-playing 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 we will literally just get them street smart um for a week and just practice 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 and they will walk out of training with a week's worth of appointments, they'll walk out of training with prep for every single one of those appointments. They'll walk out and they'll have they'll So they're selling within two weeks? Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and how I think, does that differ from, say, a few years back? So I think a few years back. So I did a seven-week new starter training when I started with Yellow um, 15 years ago. And one week of that was just spent learning the codes for our print ads. So 
I think we had a thousand different print products um, and every one of them had a, a different, well, UDAC. Where, so, where, where does that list look like now? Um, so it's a much simpler list. Mm -hmm. So we've got quite a number of products and legacy products that we still print, mm -hmm. um, but that list would be printed on less than one A4 piece of paper. So mm -hmm. whilst the price points might change from a bigger regional market to a smaller regional market, the actual composition of them is far simpler. Okay. So you've gone from seven week to a two week okay. initial sales process. Yeah. So a rep, it's mostly, so most of the training is on, in the field ongoing. Versus, Correct. You know, and so we've just found it's far more valuable to have people mm -hmm. sitting side by side with someone, mm -hmm. um, whether that be in a contact center environment, whether it be in a face-to-face -face environment. Um, mm -hmm. But we've found it far more valuable to make sure we not only teach it, but we're also coaching it. Right. And then that ongoing learning and development that happens constantly. So we utilize the capability managers from an education piece mm -hmm. that will happen constantly throughout the year. Okay. The one last thing I want to ask, and then we're going to go to break and we're going to come back with more of like the future and how technology Technology is going to drive sales in the future. You know, the tough question is, you know, how much have you had to transition actual people because of the transition and how, how things are sold, what's being sold, and, and all the conversation we've had about small businesses, you know, wanting to be sold to differently, having different needs. I mean, has the transition, you know, left some casualties and how do you deal with it? I think for us, we probably, um, I've been speaking to a lot of the other publishers outside of Australia, and I think they're far earlier in their journey than what we are. So I think for us as an organization, we've been selling the Yellow Pages online for 15 years. We were selling websites 15 years ago. So we'd kind of started our digital journey um, sure, you've been quite a long yeah, time yeah. ago. So that transition um, probably happened a while ago? So I think that transition for us happened a while ago, but I think mm -hmm. one of the things is, I don't want to sound harsh when I say this, but... You're either on the bus or you're mm -hmm. not on the bus. And right. I think we have an exceptional business. And I kind of, the reason I love the business today is still the same reason that I loved the business 15 years ago. I get up out of bed every day and I mm -hmm. feel like I'm making a difference to the lives of the businesses that we serve. And it's it, like, it gives me a little kick. And I think we've got a duty of responsibility to make sure that we continue to service the 100,000 customers that we have. And I think if people are on board with us, we're going to have a lot of fun and we're going to continue to build amazing relationships with our customers and we're going to continue to build new and emerging products that are going to come into the market in the future and maybe mm -hmm. we're going to change the way that we sell and, and kind of engage with our customers. But I think ultimately people have a choice to make in life and I think we have an exceptional business and I really love our business and I love working in the business and I think some of those people over the kind of earlier on in the journey, it was a harder transition for them to right. make with digital um, but they've gone on to have exceptional careers. Okay, so let me ask you a slightly different way, and we'll, we'll then we'll go to break. I know when you t we talk to like companies that have uh, salespeople, direct salespeople for SaaS products, for yeah. example, a lot of times you hear the conversation of they within ninety days they have to demonstrate a certain level of competency, or they're you know they, they don't make the cut, you yeah. know they they wash out of training or whatever. How does that process work for you? And and what point do you know if somebody's going to work out or not if they're a new hire? So I think we pretty much know. I was going to say almost straight away. So I think one mm -hmm. of the things that um, in the transition to our new training methodology, mm -hmm. my number two performer at the moment across the country came out of training six weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And I think we've almost built a model where previously we would have this like six month ramp to proficiency. I can now get someone out of training and get them in the field and within two weeks know if they're going to be any good. And so I think for us, um, one of the pieces we've done with kind of taking a little bit longer to recruit the right talent mm -hmm. has kind of paid dividends for us because so I you, think... So you do less washout, fewer washouts. We have yeah. much fewer washouts. Mm -hmm. So I think 
just taking your time and making sure you're recruiting the right people can deliver some really exceptional results. Thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Elise from Yellow Australia, aka Census. And stay tuned for more upcoming episodes of Above the Cloud. Thanks again for joining us and goodbye.